even though now we see through a glass darkly, we know one day the true believer will see you face to face. Then we'll know just exactly how great you are. So thank you for that. And now we pray that you'd manifest your heart to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ephesians, the third chapter. You may turn there if you would. My plan had been to speak on the situation in Japan this morning, but when I rose this morning, I had no confidence that I should spend and focus the entire message on that subject. But this I will say with confidence regarding the situation in Japan, we are to pray. We're to pray for the Japanese people, and I think specifically we should be praying for laborers for the harvest because there could be an unprecedented harvest of souls in Japan as a result of these tragedies. We also need to pray for the government officials in Japan. I can also say this with confidence, that this sort of seismic activity is a sign of the nearness of the Lord's return. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that these kinds of things would be increasing in the same way that the birth pangs of a woman increase prior to giving birth. And we're certainly seeing these type of phenomena increasing as we get closer and closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So because of that, the believer is to lift up his or her head, looking to the Lord Jesus and understanding that our redemption draws near. Don't be afraid. Lift up your head, open your eyes, see the Lord Jesus about to return because your redemption draws near. And in the meantime, let's live as godly, spirit-filled lives as we possibly can. Amen? So, that's that message. But this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, so thank God for his word. Verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... And then look down at verse 13. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. This whole section, verses 1 through 13, is really all about Paul's pastoral heart for the Ephesian believers. He's concerned about them because they're concerned about him. He's in prison in Rome. And they're concerned about the, well, the health and the welfare of their beloved apostle. And so out of his pastoral concern for them, he gives them a myriad of reasons why this is God's plan for his life. Therefore, they're not to lose heart. So that's what the section really is aimed at by Paul. But in the middle of it, man, there's just so much that we can glean from of truth the truth of the gospel. The very first thing that we note is that Paul was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians was written while Paul was in custody in Rome. He was under the authority of the Roman government. He was under house arrest at this time. He was free to move about. 
the book of Acts tells us, in his own rented quarters. He was under supervision. He was chained to a soldier at nighttime. But even in those conditions, he sees himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, the cause of his imprisonment was his ministry to the Gentiles. Notice verse 1, prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He's a prisoner in Rome under the authority of the Roman government because he had been faithful to take the gospel message to the Gentiles, and for no other reason. He had committed no crime. He saw himself not as a prisoner of Rome. He didn't see himself as a prisoner of Caesar. He saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The trial he had undergone back in Caesarea had been unjust. He'd been charged with no specific crime. He was only held because of the hostility of unbelieving religious Jews. He could have been bitter. Paul could have been resentful. He could have been striving to get out of his imprisonment. But instead he rested in the sovereignty of God. He waited for God's deliverances. He saw his circumstances as being ordained by the Lord. His eyes were on Jesus Christ. Men like Paul the Apostle see life through the eyes of faith. They don't see life through their own human eyes and their own human abilities to evaluate their circumstances. Men like Paul see their lives through the eyes of and the lens of faith. And it's very interesting to note, and it's very encouraging to learn from his example. Now, just as a side note, if you were to go to Paul while he was in prison in Rome and ask him, what is your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God? And what do you think will be your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God during this entire ordeal of your punishment and imprisonment? I do not think that Paul would have answered with this answer. I don't think he would have said, well, my greatest contribution to the kingdom of God undoubtedly has been the epistles I wrote. Yet, indeed, that turns out being the greatest contribution of Paul the Apostle during this time of imprisonment. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, 2nd, I mean, just look at the epistles that he wrote. They're gold to us. Imagine, you who are following the Lord, what your life would be like without those precious epistles of of Paul the Apostle. I think the lesson there is, we never know how God is using any particular aspect of our lives. We think, this is the real reason for it, or this is the real result of it. We may not be right. I don't think Paul would have been able to answer Uh, with that particular answer, but yet undoubtedly history has shown that the epistles were the most important part of that time of imprisonment. There are also three misconceptions, I think, that are corrected through the example of Paul's imprisonment, misconceptions that are common to believers today. Number one, the misconception, it's always an easy thing to be in the center of God's will. Not. It's not always an easy thing to be in the center of God's will. In fact, if you've been told that it's easy to be in the center of God's will at all times and under every circumstance, who told you that? And shame on them for having told you that. Seriously. And why did you believe it? Without checking the scriptures. You're responsible as well. 
It's not always an easy thing to be in the center of God's will. Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side. So they got into the boat and they went to the other side. And what happened? They had a huge storm and they couldn't even row against that storm. And they were out there all night long laboring and in great fear. Jesus had told them to get in the boat. Yet it was hard. It just serves as an example of the way it can be for us sometimes. It's the best thing to be in the center of God's will, but it's not always the easiest thing. Second misconception, sufferings or persecution are always due to some failure in our lives. Sufferings or persecution are always due to some failure in our lives. That's also not true. Paul the Apostle had done nothing wrong, yet he found himself in prison. Job had done nothing wrong, yet he found himself in the most horrendous circumstances. It's not true that sufferings or persecution are always due to some failure in our lives. On the contrary, Peter writes about suffering according to the will of God. And Jesus tells his disciples, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my namesake. So there you have it. Third misconception, when we experience troubles as we attempt to serve God, it must mean that we're outside of his will. That's a misconception. That if I attempt to serve God in an area and I hit a snag or a roadblock comes up my way or things get really challenging or there's trouble as a result, that I must be outside of God's will. That's not true. I need to persevere with that which I know is God's plan for my life and not stop serving him. The direction of my service may change, but not the service itself. So having said all that, look at your text, and you'll see that verse 1 ends with a thought. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, and then he stops. The New King James Version has a long semicolon, or, uh, or a dash, actually, The NIV also has a long dash here. The point is that after he makes this statement in verse 1, he doesn't complete his thought until verse 13. Everything from verses 2 through 12 is an explanation of the reasons why the Ephesians should not be discouraged by his imprisonment. So what Paul is saying is God has a plan and he's accomplishing his purposes in that plan. So let's dive into it. First of all, Paul says, I have a stewardship from God. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Dispensation, New King James, stewardship, and other translations. That's what it means. He had been given a stewardship from God. What is a stewardship? It's a responsibility that someone is supposed to take care of. Paul had been given a responsibility that he was being asked and commanded by Jesus Christ to take care of. What was that responsibility about? He had a stewardship of the grace of God. What an amazing calling and task. God gave to him, the Lord Jesus gave to Paul, the stewardship or the responsibility of making sure that the grace of God got communicated and passed on to others. Wow! It was Paul, if you remember, that wrote the book of Galatians. Remember what the book of Galatians was about? 
the grace of God was being threatened and challenged by legalists that were coming into the church. And they were saying, no, no, it's not enough just to have faith in Jesus Christ. In addition to your faith in Jesus Christ, you must add circumcision. Only when a Gentile believer is circumcised is his salvation completed. Paul said, absolutely not. That's not the case. That's not true. In the whole book of Galatians, if you read it in one sitting, just check out the tone. Paul is not a happy camper. He's very angry about these false uh, attempts to twist and distort the gospel. So he defends the gospel of grace in the book of Galatians. He explains it thoroughly in the book of Romans. He applies it completely in the book of Ephesians. And all throughout his letters, Paul is a steward of the grace of God. We know about the grace of God from the Lord Jesus first and foremost, but it's explained to us more completely at Jesus' command through the letters of Paul the Apostle. That's important. And he had been given this tremendous privilege of being the steward of the grace of God. Now, this stewardship that he had been given had come to him supernaturally. Look at verse 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So put those thoughts together. He'd received the stewardship of the grace of God, and this grace of God had been revealed to Paul by divine revelation. Now, Paul says it was a mystery. Don't let the word mystery be mysterious to you. All that means is that it was something that in previous ages had not been revealed, but has now been revealed by the Spirit of God. It was something that had previously been hidden, and now it had been revealed. There are other examples of mysteries in the New Testament. In Romans 11.25, the partial blindness of the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in is revealed as a mystery, not revealed in the Old Testament. Another mystery is in 1 Corinthians 15. The mystery of the instant change of living believers so that their bodies are turned into their heavenly glorified bodies while they're still alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. That's a mystery, not revealed in the Old Testament, but very much revealed in the New. Now this mystery of the grace of God that Paul had received as a stewardship had to do with the Gentiles, as we'll see in verse 6. And it was not a mystery that Gentiles could be saved. That's in the Old Testament. It wasn't even a mystery that Gentiles or non-Jewish people would be saved through or without the efforts of the Jews. What was a mystery, and we'll see this in a few moments, was that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews in one body, in one organism called the body of Christ. This was new. The church was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament as the body of Christ, the body of Messiah, made up of believing Jew and believing Gentile on equal terms because we both come to the cross on equal terms. 
That wasn't revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, but it is clearly revealed through this stewardship that Paul had been given by the Lord. So the stewardship is a very important stewardship. It came by divine revelation. It had come to Paul supernaturally. But next, the stewardship, this divine revelation Paul received, was confirmed by the apostles and prophets. Look at verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Why is this important? Why is that one line so important in the New Testament and in this particular explanation? I'll tell you why it's important. It's important to note that Paul was not alone in his message. It was not his alone. In other words, Paul the Apostle didn't receive this divine revelation, write his letters, and he was the only one saying it. Or he was the only one seeing it. No, he wasn't the only one saying it, and he wasn't the only one seeing it. There were others. Now, if it would have been Larry Moe and Curly Joe being, who, who were the ones that were seeing it, then it would have been a problem. But the other ones that were seeing it and the other ones that were saying it happened to be apostles. Remember those guys? The ones that Jesus had called specifically to follow him and be with him and receive divine revelation from him. And prophets, New Testament prophets. You see, the whole body of apostles and the whole body of prophets who were alive at the time of Paul, they together were hearing the same thing from the Lord Jesus. And they were seeing the same thing that the Lord Jesus was seeing. And they were saying the same thing that the Lord Jesus was saying. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That this is what the grace of God looks like. And the very first time this becomes abundantly manifest and clear to everyone was in the book of Acts. The apostolic church there in Acts chapter 15. You may not not remember the incident, but what it was, was that there was a need for a church council. Now church councils ought to be big deals, and it was a big deal. It was a church council. Peter was involved. The other apostles were involved. The prophets were involved. Paul was involved. James, the brother of the Lord, was involved. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. They were all there, every one of them. And what was the issue? The issue was the same issue that the Galatian letter was all about, and that is, what are the requirements that God is placing upon Jewish or excuse me non-Jewish or Gentile believers in Jesus the Messiah? Do they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved? Now behind that issue was the greater issue which basically was saying do they have to become Jews in order to be saved? Does a Gentile have to be converted to Judaism. That was a huge issue. If that was the case, then it would not be likely that Christianity would have spread very far. So they looked at that. They considered apostolic testimony. They saw what God had done through Peter when he went to the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. They debated the whole theology of the matter. And after they went back and forth and 
tried to hear the mind of God, the, the Spirit was very, very clear. And James stood up and summarized the whole set of proceedings. It is my judgment, and the Holy Spirit is saying the same thing, that we should not trouble those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ from among the Gentiles, but that if they keep themselves from things strangled, and from blood, and from fornication, and from idols, they will do well. Other than that, we're not going to lay upon them any greater obligation. And everyone that was there said, Amen, this is what the Lord is saying. Amen, this is consistent with Old and New Testament Scripture alike. Amen, this is the voice of Jesus Himself. And they heard the voice of the Lord, and then they implemented what the Lord had said. And when the Gentiles received the letter from the church in Jerusalem that stated these conclusions... Everywhere this letter was read, there was great rejoicing. In the church of Antioch, to the north, in Syria, great rejoicing. In the churches in Galatia, Paul's first missionary journey, second missionary journey, great rejoicing. Why? Because the gospel is good news and it's free. The Jews, God's chosen people, His covenant people, the acceptance of their covenant, Genesis chapter 17, will submit to circumcision. Not something that applied to the, Jew, to the Gentiles at all. And they recognized that. You see, the message is this, that is only, salvation comes only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ plus fill in the blanks. There's nothing to add there. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, period. That's the New Testament message. And aren't you glad? I mean, this is freedom. This is rejoicing. This is the change of life by the love and the grace of God that only He can, he can perform in us. So, Paul wasn't alone in his message there were apostles and prophets that were very much in on it. And then, next, the message contained a specific theme, the Gentiles are fellow heirs in the body of Christ. We've already stated this, the Gentiles wouldn't need to become Jews to be part of the body of Christ. And back in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul wrote that a new man was formed when the church was born. And the new man is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles in Jesus the Messiah. And so, verses, uh, verse 6 says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. There's so much in there, but fellow heirs with believing Jews of the same body of Christ, Jesus Christ being the head, partakers of his promise, all of these things, through the good news, the gospel itself. And then, a next aspect, God gave Paul the grace to be a minister of this gospel, verses 7 through 9, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. 
To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul credits the Lord in all of this. In verse 7 he says that he became a minister of this gospel. How? Not because he was the most brilliant, although he was a brilliant man. Not because he was the most religious, although he was an extremely devout man as a Pharisee. Not because he had any particular attribute that commended him for the job, but he was a minister of this gospel of grace because of the gift of the grace of God which had been given to him and the power of God that was working in his life, verse 7 tells us. In other words, Paul knew what he could do, but he also knew what he could not do. And I think it's just as important to know what we cannot do as it is to know what we can do. Now, I can do nothing apart from Christ. It's important for me to know that. But it's also important to me to know that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's important to know both. Paul knew both in his own life. It was God's power at work which gave him this ministry. Earlier he had written to the Corinthians and he said, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient. God will make you sufficient. God will make me sufficient. He will give you the power. He will give me the power to do the thing that he's called us to do. It's his power and it's his grace that does it. I mean, you're, you're looking at me this morning, you're listening to me speak to you as a pastor teacher, and I've been in this role and, and fulfilling this calling for many years now. But I didn't call myself into this. This wasn't my plan for my life. This was something that God decided to do. And it was the grace of God that called me in it. And it's been His power that has sustained me in it. Not mine. Nothing to do with me. And that's true of every minister of the gospel of Christ and every servant within the body of Christ because we all have ministries, as Ben so aptly pointed out earlier. So it's very important to know where the ministry comes from. And there's nothing, really, that Jesus calls us to do that he is not going to be enabling us to do it. His call is his promise of the fulfillment of his power. Now here's another thing. Paul knew who he was also. And he also knew what he was not. Notice what he says of himself. He calls himself in verse 8, less than the least of all the saints. I love that. Less than the least of all the saints. Now some would say this is just false humility. I don't think so. I think it's the way Paul saw himself. I think he saw himself as less than the least of all things. Earlier he had written to the Corinthians. And he called himself the least of the apostles. Why did he call himself the least of the apostles? Why did he consider himself on the bottom rung of all the apostolic troop? Because he had persecuted the church of God. 
He felt that as a former persecutor of the church prior to his conversion, he should not be considered anything among the apostolic band. That's the way he viewed himself. And now he calls himself the least of all saints. Now listen to this. Later on, just a few years later, when he writes to Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. First, right around, oh, 56 AD, he writes to the Corinthians and says, I'm the least of the apostles. And then, you know, right around 60, 61 AD, he writes to the Ephesians and calls himself the least of all saints. And then right around 62, 63 A.D., he writes to Timothy and calls himself the chief of sinners. In other words, as the years went on, his opinion of himself decreased. Isn't that interesting? Not false humility, but simply understanding that apart from the grace of God, these are the situations that existed within his life. I think it's a wonderful example to follow, and hopefully the older and more mature we become in Christ, the less we think of ourselves. We think of ourselves entirely too much anyway. I know I do. What a boring and depressing subject (laughs) to think about myself. (laughs) I love this, less than the least of all saints. And he said that this grace was given to him so that he might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's a loaded statement all by itself. Paul was the one chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You'd have thought it would have been Peter, rough and tumble fisherman Peter. Man, Gentiles can relate to this guy. Comes in and just bowls everyone over with his charismatic personality and you know, just his style. Peter, yeah, he's a man among men. Good for the Gentiles. And then Paul, this bowed over, hooked nose, balding guy with eye problems. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Again, you know, the Lord does what he does in order to receive maximum glory for himself and minimum glory for us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul wrote, that the excellence of the power might be from God and not from us. (laughs) In other words, the Lord has placed his deposit of himself, this incredible eternal pleasure. Where would you put it? Fort Knox? Where did he put it? In this? In these jars of clay? Pots of clay? So that the world around us looks and sees what God does in our lives and they say, had to be the Lord. Absolutely had to be the Lord. And that's the intended purpose of God. That we look at it all and say, it had to be the Lord. Now God has a wise and eternal purpose in all that he does. Paul's talking about the gospel of grace that he'd been given a stewardship to preach and proclaim. He's talking about what that mystery is. He's talking about what he had received to be able to proclaim that gospel of grace. That's his subject. And then in verses 10 and 11 and 12, these are the things he says. To the intent. Now we're getting into why God did all this. 
to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. That's a mouthful. Why the grace of God? Why the preaching of this message? Why the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory? Why the grace that has been shed abroad in our hearts? Why, why, why? Verse 10. So that the manifold or many splendored or very diverse and beautiful wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To whom? To the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, who are the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places? This is a phrase that describes the angelic hosts. It can be descriptive of good angels, and it can be descriptive of fallen angels. It's used in both ways in the New Testament. So let's just take it as the whole collective body of angels, good and bad. But probably more of an emphasis on the good ones. Because they're the only ones for whom it actually matters. But here's what God's purpose was. That through the church the angels might be able to learn the many splendored, beautiful wisdom of God through the church. In other words, angels are watching your life and mine. Angels are watching the church. Angels are watching you as an individual believer. And they're trying to learn something from the way we live. What are they trying to learn? They're trying to learn how wise is God in picking those folks. Now, I wonder if angels have ever scratched their heads about God's plan. I mean, they look around and, you know, these are the ones that didn't fall in the rebellion with Lucifer. They look around at their fellow angels and they think, well, we can do the job a whole lot more efficiently and with a whole lot less problems than those humanoids can do it. Why did God pick them? And they're watching to see what God is going to do through human lives. You say, well, is there any example of that? And I would say, absolutely, Job is an example of this. Job's life was a heavenly display. The challenges he faced, the sufferings he experienced, did he ever find out what they were about? Did God ever tell him, this is why you lost your family, Job? This is why you've lost your health. 
This is why you've lost your cattle and your sheep and your donkeys and your possessions. This is why you've lost your esteem and your reputation in the community. This is why, Job, the Lord never told him those things. The Lord had confidence in Job that his life in Job would be able to put his own wisdom on display. Just watch what I do with Job. Have you considered my servant Job? The Lord asked Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is no one like them, him, upright, one who fears God and keeps my commandments. Have you, considered my, have you ever really checked out my servant Job? And you remember Satan's response, Yeah, but you take away the stuff he's got, take away the props by which you're propping up his life artificially, and he'll curse you to your face. So all those things were taken from Job, and he continued to praise God, give him glory. And then the same accusation later. Skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. Go after his life, and he'll curse you. Okay, go for it. But don't take his life, don't kill him. So Satan did to Job just about everything short of killing him. And Job continued to praise God and give glory to him. And the angels were watching. The devil was watching. Could this really be? Could a person really live this way? Could a person really see divine truth in spite of all of the things that they're experiencing that are so contrary to everything they know about life? And the answer is absolutely. God is big enough to do that in a man and in a woman. He did it in Job. And that's what he's doing in the church. To the end that the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. The Lord is watching our lives and the angels are watching our lives. As if we didn't need or as if we did need more motivation to live godly lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But on top of that, he gives us motivations like this. Angels are watching you. You know, and we, we just check it out. Oh, wow, this is pretty heavy. Angels are watching. Did you know angels attend worship services? Read 1 Corinthians 11. Did you know that angels observe the attitude of people as they come into worship services? Read 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. They're in on the whole thing. They're very interested. Do you know angels are studying prophecy to see how all this is going to unfold? Read 1 Peter chapter 1. It's pretty incredible. The spiritual stuff that's going on around us that we're not even aware of. But this is God's wise and eternal purpose. He has a very high and a very great purpose for our lives. And for us to live consistently with his plan is what it's all about. And it, you know, it gets down to the, the small stuff of life. Stuff that we might consider to be small stuff of life. Do I gripe and complain or do I give thanks? I mean, really. 
Am I a thankful person or am I just a griping, complaining old sourpuss? Crotchety. Ebenezer, Scrooge, you know. Humbug on everything. You know, really, who am I? When I'm by myself, in my own heart. Somebody does me wrong? Does my mind or even my mouth curse the person who did me the wrong? Do I pray for them? Do I truly bless the ones that curse me and pray for those who spitefully use me and persecute me? The angels are watching. How's this human going to live his life anyway? How's it going to shake out in the way he lives? Am I going to trust the Lord? When things are tough? When I've lost my job? And there doesn't seem to be any real sources of income around me? When the fig tree doesn't blossom and the olive tree doesn't yield its fruit? Will I rejoice in the Lord like Habakkuk did and jump for joy and spin around like a top with joy because of his salvation? Angels are watching me and they're watching you. And if we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit and we do it according to the command of God, guess what? The principalities and the powers in the heavenly places, they just have it confirmed for them all over again. This God that we have served ever since he made us is all wise and all powerful and is awesome in every way we can imagine him being awesome. That's the message. <laughs> now, Paul says all of that to say what he says in verse 13. Therefore, I ask that you don't lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. Okay, I guess I won't. I'm not going to feel sorry for you, Paul. You've told us why you're suffering. You've told us why you're in prison. You've told us the ministry God has given you. You've told us the great purposes of God. And you're okay with it. You're good with it. So we're good with it, too. That was really it. Therefore, don't be discouraged. And what's the lesson behind the lesson here? The lesson behind the lesson here is that when we understand truth, the bases for discouragement are stripped away from us. When we understand truth. When we get our minds wrapped around truth again. When we let truth come into our hearts. What's really going on here? This is how I feel. And this is what my circumstances are saying. But what's true? True. I remember in the days when I used to struggle with spiritual depression. And I could get pretty low, pretty melancholy. And I didn't know how to defeat it. But one of the things that really helped me, it still helps me, Piece of paper, really, really simple approach, folks. Piece of paper, column one, what I'm feeling. Column two, what is true. By the time I got down to two or three of the things that I was feeling and answered it with truth, I was doing okay again. Because truth 
disarms the discouragement and pulls the rug out from under it. It's exposed. And there's lots of reasons to be discouraged in this life. But none of them can stand for the Christian once we get back into truth. Amen? So there it is. What an incredible section, huh? And all just the heart of the Apostle Paul and his apostolic and pastoral heart for the Ephesians. And, it, you know, it's another thing here to point out. <laughs> it's basically all just one big sentence. I mean, you know, he breaks it up at one point or another, but it's pretty much a run-on sentence. You like long sentences, you'll love Paul's epistles. Because <laughs> he loves long sentences. But don't skip over the long sentences. They're great. A lot in them. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your truth. Thank you, Lord, for the revelation of the grace of God. Thank you for the message of Christ. Thank you for the heart of ministry. Thank you, Lord, for your great and eternal purpose. Thank you for your many-splendored wisdom. All of these things, they point back to you, Lord. They all point back to you as the God who initiated the plan of salvation, who sent his Son, who called human beings to be part of your plan, who gave the church the role of declaring your wisdom to those things that are visible and invisible. And we're not up to the task. Not at all. Not by ourselves we're not. Not in and of ourselves we're not. We have nothing in ourselves to commend ourselves to this task. But all the resources are in you, Father. And in the Spirit of God. So guide your church. Guide your people. Strengthen your church. Strengthen your people. And Lord, keep us from living less lesser lives than are worthy of what our life is really about. Keep us from living low lives. Lives that don't matter. Strip from us, Lord, those things that are hindrances to fruitfulness. And enable us, Lord, to live for those things that are eternal. And we thank you for it, in Jesus' name.